trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, once again, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, if you're just wrong, think curious and you're feeling like, I don't know if this is for me or not. All I can do is invite you to stick around. Okay, I'm going to try to get you thinking. My thing is not so much about, hey, you have to listen to what I have to say because I'm right about everything. Truth of the matter is I'm not. But I am earnestly seeking truth, and I speak the truth as I best understand it, always being open, of course, to the idea that there may be something that could further enlarge my view and and, uh, make sense. So if you're a person who values clear and independent thought and you want to own your own worldview, well, my friend, you're in the right place. And hopefully you'll, you'll recognize that within just a few minutes of us diving into the topics that I have in store for this hour. Uh, we're going to start by talking about sound money. And I, I don't know why, but this, is, this has been such a hot topic for me for a long time. I think it's one of those things of, you know, we tend to talk about those things that we want but cannot have. <laughs> okay, whether it's money or whether it's sound money, um, you know, guilty on, on both counts. But... We'll talk about whether or not paper money is constitutional. I also want to bring a case to your attention that it happened some years ago. I mean, it happened, well, probably 10, 12, maybe maybe as many as 15 years ago, involving a businessman by the name of Robert Kari. And it's a terrible injustice, but it illustrates there's something terribly wrong with our monetary policy in this country. I'm also going to spend a little bit of time uh, talking today about uh, how corporations see themselves as social stewards for social change. Got a great article from Kimberly Josephson. Uh, This is from the Foundation for Economic Education. I mean, some of us, uh, us old timers, the ones with the the gray hair and gray beards, we remember what it was like when, when corporations actually were more interested in providing value to their customers in order to secure market share than they were in signaling virtue and trying to nudge the, the moral compass of society in a direction that they felt was the right way to go. But let's start with money. And I'm going to start out with a couple of things here from Jacob Hornberger. Why is paper money constitutional? Now, maybe most of your thinking about money is limited at this moment to, wow, things are costing more. Have you noticed that? And we're all seeing the uh, effects of inflation. You know what's really curious And I don't say this because I'm I'm trying to be partisan and I think you should be angry with Joe Biden. But someone asked him at a recent press conference just within the last few days, uh, hey, Mr. President, you want to make a comment about uh, rising prices? And and Biden's response, which I guess this is in keeping with how he campaigned, he turned and walked away. This from a press conference. He was there to answer questions. And I mean, if someone can explain to me, why would that be out of bounds? You know, is that, what, what does that have to do with anything? Well, you know, the fact that everybody is having to pay more for everything. I don't know. You think that that uh, might, I mean, you know, considering that not just Biden, but presidents generally like to claim credit for everything that goes right and, you know, disavow any connection to things that went wrong. You just might would think he would have something to say about it. Not so. He literally turned and walked away. So here's what Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation says. Jacob Hornberger says the official money of the United States today is 
paper currency, but that's clearly not what the Constitution says. The Constitution says that gold and silver coins shall be the nation's currency. Now, you may be wondering, how is that possible? I thought the Constitution was supposed to be the highest law of the land. I also thought it was the responsibility of the U.S. Supreme Court to enforce the Constitution. So why then are Americans living under a paper money monetary system rather than the system stipulated in the Constitution? Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution gives Congress the power to coin money. It's not given the power to print money. It's given no power, in fact, to print money. Coining money is not printing money. And at the risk of belaboring the obvious, coining money entails making coins out of metals. Now, the framers preferred coins made from gold and silver. How do we know this? Well, flip your Constitution open, if you will, to Article 1, Section 10, which states in part, No state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. It'd be tough to get any clearer than that. So the question naturally arises, why have the states made paper money a tender in payment of debts, given that the Constitution expressly limits them to making only gold and silver coin legal tender? And why hasn't the Supreme Court forced the states to comply with the Constitution? Equally important, why has the Supreme Court failed to force the federal government to comply with the Constitution? I mean, it's clear that by the express language of the Constitution, the framers, as well as our American ancestors, not only favored gold and silver coins as the official money of the United States, but they also engrafted such a system onto the Constitution itself. Isn't the responsibility of the Supreme Court to enforce the Constitution? It was President Franklin Roosevelt who, along with his Congress, abrogated America's founding monetary system. Citing the economic emergency of the Great Depression, Roosevelt and his Congress decreed that America would no longer use gold and silver coins as its official money. Instead, it would resort to paper money as its official money. Roosevelt then went a step further, and he ordered everyone to turn in his gold coins to the federal government. In return, they would receive paper money. Now remember, anyone who was caught owning gold coins, which had been the official legal money of the American people for more than a century, would be criminally prosecuted for a felony. But Jacob Hornberger points out there was at least one big problem with Roosevelt's actions. He didn't secure a constitutional amendment prior to nationalizing gold and making paper money legal tender. So just in case you're wondering, just as a reminder here, The Constitution is the highest law of the land because it controls the actions of the President and Congress. The executive and legislative branches cannot amend the Constitution. In other words, they are required to comply with the Constitution. Moreover, the Constitution does not provide an emergency exception, and that means its provisions remain fully operative and enforceable despite any emergency. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court abrogated its responsibility to enforce the Constitution, which enabled Roosevelt to get away with his monetary power grab. So that's how Americans have come to live under a paper money system, notwithstanding the clear language to the contrary in the Constitution. It's also how federal officials have been able to confiscate the income and wealth of the American people through decades of monetary debasement. Inflation is is another term that, that we would use to describe that. Now, I'm a regular subscriber to the Future of Freedom Foundation. It's fff.org. 
Even if you just visit their website once, take the time to sign up for their email updates, and I believe they send email updates out six days a week. There's almost always a new article from Jacob Hornberger, who I, I just want to toot his horn. He is such a humble and good man. He is also a very principled defender of freedom. He is not holding water, you know, or carrying water rather for the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. In fact, he's very nonpartisan in his approach. And that's the that's the thing. That's what to me, that's what indicates that a person is legitimately standing on the side of freedom. When they are advocating freedom, when they're advocating limited government, personal liberty, private property, freedom of conscience, all of these things. They advocate them for everybody, not just for the connected few or the ones who happen to vote with me, but for everybody. And you would think that would be, you know, a very easy sell. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're free to do what you want to do. You do you. I'll do me. But uh, for people of a controlling nature, that's that's not something that they like. So sign up for their uh, for their email updates, the Future of Freedom Foundation, and uh, you'll find a lot of great information on what has happened to our monetary system. Now, we're going to come back here in a few moments after the break, and we're going to talk about uh, something that illustrates very clearly why there is such a huge disconnect. And I know there are those who will say, well, now, Brian, you know, when the founders were talking about minting coins or coining, you know, currency... That was at a time when there weren't that many people. There was just a few million people total in the entire United States. We're upwards of 330 million folks now, and, you know, the, those numbers are growing all the time. And I get the point. There's just not enough gold in the world for us to do this. And yet, you know, we have the technology now where, I mean, if you wanted to get down to a microgram of gold, you could do it accurately. But for people who want to spend what they want to spend and exercise control over the rest of the populace, the monetary system we have right now, the fractional reserve banking system and the Federal Reserve with its its, uh, monetary policies, seems to work very well for at least the people in power. I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's a lot of spending that's going on. And at the same time, as all these dollars are created out of thin air, in other words, there's nothing of intrinsic value backing them, all the dollars that are in circulation purchase less and less because their purchasing power is being watered down. That sounds like an injustice, doesn't it? Okay, well, I'm going to tell you about a real injustice that happened to a Las Vegas businessman a few years back. If you are on blood pressure medications, you may want to take one before you listen to the next segment. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, welcome back to the show. A quick shout out to our sponsors. They include MonticelloCollege.org, also HSLAmmo.com, and of course, uh, we also are appreciative of PureLight.com, Pure-Light.com. I thought to uh, include some links to them in the show notes, which you'll find at TheBrianHydeShow.com. Look for the show notes for May 24th, 2021, and you will be on your way. All right, we're talking about money, and in particular, we're talking about sound money. But to illustrate the difference between sound money versus fiat money or just, uh, I'm trying to think of a nice way 
a diplomatic way to say uh, a place for politicians to play and have their way with with the monetary system. That's what we're under right now. And since it's most it's what most people have known all their life, you know, very few people can remember back to when President Roosevelt outlawed the possession of gold and ordered people to turn in their gold coins. Very few people remember, I mean, there are a lot of folks who don't even remember what it was like when Richard Nixon, as president, detached the uh, U.S. dollar from gold. It once, there once was a time when every dollar bill was backed by gold. Now we just have currency that is pieces of paper that are backed by the, the full faith and credit of the American people, which sounds so noble until you realize that they only have purchasing power because you and I believe they have currency, or they have uh, purchasing power. I mean, I get excited. I find a $20 bill in my pocket. I'm like, all right, cool. But what is the absolute intrinsic value of that? Well, it depends, you know. If we go the way of hyperinflation like Zimbabwe or Argentina, I don't know, that uh, $20 bill may make uh, more use as a, handkerchief if my nose is runny than it will for trying to buy anything you know especially if you're paying 50 bucks for a can of beans but sometimes the approach to what is legal tender and what isn't can lead to some really sketchy government behavior nowhere is this more clear than in the case of robert Carey. here's an article from december of 2013 this is from jacob hornberger again from the future of freedom foundation in which he states the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has upheld the criminal conviction of Robert Carey, the man who incurred the wrath of the IRS by paying his employees in gold coin. Since the face value of the gold coins was significantly below the legal threshold that triggers withholding taxes, the court held that Carey didn't do his duty to serve as a tax collector for the U.S. welfare warfare state by withholding income taxes from the monies paid to his employees. He is serving a 15-year sentence in a federal penitentiary. I wonder if he is close to getting out. I I searched this up, and I, I can't find any updates. As far as I know, he's still sitting in prison. But in a nutshell, here's what he did. <clears throat> if you have collected gold coins, you know that uh, you know the, the old uh, double eagle that would have been popular back in the day of, uh, you know, FDR, said $20 on it. That's stamped right into that gold piece. And what $20 would buy you back in 1933, yep, that gold piece would, would pretty well cover it. I believe the pieces that Kari was using were, were also minted gold coins, but they, were, they stated, you know, $50. Now, obviously, they were worth more in the sense that, you know, the the spot price of gold at that time was somewhere around $1,000. I don't know where it is now, $1,500, $1,700, something like that. I haven't uh, haven't been on Kimco.com to to check it out, or Kitco.com to to see. But I can tell you this. Kari said, okay, to his employees, he says, look, here's the deal. Now, I can pay you in Federal Reserve notes, FRNs, you know, and um, I'm willing to pay you $2,000 a month. Or I can pay you four of these uh, $50 gold coins. I think maybe, maybe the price was closer to um, $500 an ounce at the time. I, I know it was, it's hard to imagine that, but the, the price of gold was down around 500 bucks an ounce in, in the mid-2000s. 
So he told his employees, if, if I pay you in gold coins, I'll give you four gold coins. You know, four of those gold coins, if you turned around and sold them to somebody, would net you $2,000 easily. But because they had stamped on them, you know, this is legal tender, 50 U.S. dollars. Well, guess what? In essence, he was paying his employees, at least according to what it said on the coin, 200 bucks. Four of those $50 coins, that's 200 bucks. There you go. You get to the end of the year, and wow, that's only $2,400. Uh, wow, you fell below even the reporting threshold, which means, essentially, you don't have to pay taxes on it. Now, if your first reaction is, well, why would anybody want to cheat on their taxes in that way? Stop for a minute and think, because that's, that's training, that's conditioning, that's programming that's coming forward saying, hey, man, if we all have to pay taxes, why doesn't he have to pay taxes? Understand that this was more than just an attempt to, uh, to be a scofflaw and get out of paying taxes. It was also a great opportunity to expose the fraud of the U.S. government's labeling of gold coins as legal tender and expose their decades-long fraudulent debasement of paper money. That's the real reason that the IRS came after Robert Carey. I mean, they made it out like, oh, he's trying to cheat the American people out of something. But no, he was doing something far worse than that. He was demonstrating to the American people that there is a double standard here. There is something at play here that should make you question, hey, what are they doing to our money supply? If four of these gold coins is the equivalent of $2,000, how come they only say $50 a piece on them? By the way, there was a case here just a few years ago in southern Utah, and, and this is very sad. A, a teller at a bank saw a lady come in, and she had a bunch of gold coins. And I believe the same kind of thing, $50 one-ounce gold coins. And being a clever lad, he went, oh, yeah, well, you know, we're really not equipped to take these uh, here. So he goes, I'll tell you what. I'll just pay you the face value out of my own pocket. And I think he gave her like $600. She, she had quite a bit of gold coins. But those gold coins were worth so much more. And this guy was arrested and charged with theft by deception, which she was doing. But again, let's come back to the idea. How did it get so, so out of whack? Why does government say this is legal tender? and yet treat it as if it's something very different. See, Jacob Hornberger says, you got to keep in mind that our American ancestors fully and completely rejected the paper money system under which Americans now live. That's why gold and silver coins were America's official money for the first 150 years of our country's history. During that time, Americans didn't use irredeemable paper money for their economic transactions as today's Americans do. They used gold coins and silver coins. Now, periodically, the U.S. government would borrow money. And to do so, it issued bonds and notes and bills. Sometimes the notes and bills would circulate, but everyone understood they were actually promises to pay money. In other words, gold and silver, not the money itself. They, were, they represented a receipt for that money. Maybe an IOU would be one way to, to describe it. Well, with the welfare state revolution brought on by the Franklin Roosevelt administration... America's monetary system came to a screeching halt. And without even the semblance of a constitutional amendment, 
FDR and his statist cronies simply decreed that gold and silver coins would no longer be the official money of the United States. Instead, the government's paper bills and notes would be. And what they did was they forced Americans on pain of fine and imprisonment to turn their gold over to the government. Still one of the most remarkable events in the history of the country. And it's the type of thing that a totalitarian regime would do to their citizens. I'm going to come back to this in just a few moments. But I hope you're starting to feel a little bit of a slow burn around your ears as you start to realize that, uh, yeah, the monetary supply and monetary system is being manipulated. And it doesn't matter if it's being manipulated by a very official-looking people and official-sounding people. You and I are paying the price. We'll talk about why that is just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Welcome back to the show. We're talking about sound money, and I'm using the case of Robert Carey, a Las Vegas businessman arrested several years ago and charged with, uh, I don't remember what they charged him with. I think it was tax evasion or something. But it wasn't just a matter of, you know, a couple IRS agents showed up. Yeah, we got a problem here, you know, and, you know, you're going to have to go to court. No, they sent in, I think it was an FBI SWAT team, literally. Assault rifles, body armor. Uh, they used an armored vehicle to batter down the gate of Kari's Las Vegas business. Held him and his employees at gunpoint in the hot sun for hours and hours and hours. While they grabbed computers and searched the buildings. I mean, it was it was treated like they were taken down an Al Qaeda cell. And Kari was taken to court, and he was charged with, uh, I, I, again, I can't remember if it, was, if it was tax fraud or tax evasion, but uh, the craziest part about this was, when you hear what he actually did, paid his employees in gold coins, and then told him, look, it says 50 bucks on that gold coin. If this really is legal tender, then the United States of America should honor that. And instead of uh, recognizing the $500 per coin value, at least in Federal Reserve notes, it should take it at face value, 50 bucks. You don't have to pay taxes when it's, when it's that small. But the crazy thing here is they did want to put him away. They wanted to make an example of him. How dare you point out the king has no clothes? And I think one of the, the, the cruelest aspects of his case was the fact that the, the judge lectured him as he was sentencing this man to 15 years in prison. Don't you dare let this become an opportunity to teach your wife and children to hate the federal government. Don't you presume to tell them that the government is in the wrong here. I mean, you know, you want to talk about some chutzpah? That's, <laughs> that's pretty bad. Now look, if the guy had done something violent, if he had defrauded people, um, I would have a much different take on this. I have no patience for people who engage in activities that actively harm other people. But that's not what he did. He pointed out there's a terrible inconsistency in what we say our money is versus what government actually treats as money. 
and to sit there and lecture him. Don't you let this sour your family on the fact that government is good and, and, and it's here to help you. And don't you, the fact that we're throwing you in jail and, and taking away everything you own, well, that doesn't make us the bad guys, except it, it does, at least for anybody who has any common sense. Okay, going back to Jacob Hornberger's article here, talking about how when FDR ordered Americans to turn in their gold coins, one of the most remarkable events in the history of the country, Hornberger asks, what did those bills and notes that were now circulating as money promise to pay? In other words, you know, you could go into the bank at one time with, with a, a, a silver certificate. I don't know if you've seen these. It looks just like a dollar bill, but you take it in there and they would give you a dollar in silver. You could, I mean, it was backed by something of value. What was backing these bills and notes that were now taking the place of the gold that Americans were ordered to turn in? The answer is nothing. While they were still called bills and notes, in other words, a dollar bill and a Federal Reserve note, they promised to pay nothing. And the beauty of the scheme, at least from the standpoint of U.S. officials, is that they could now spend whatever they wanted on their welfare warfare state schemes And the sky on federal spending was now the limit. All they had to do was just keep printing the money to finance their schemes. By the way, this is something that we're seeing in extraordinary clarity right now. Hornberger points out in the 1970s, once several generations of Americans had lost lost sight of the fact that gold and silver coins had once been the official money of the U.S., Congress made it once again legal to own gold and silver coins. Ever since then, the U.S. government has issued gold coins that, under the law, continue to be legal tender, just as they were in the first 150 years of our country's history. So what does that mean? Well, he says it means that under U.S. law, gold and silver coins continue to be official money of the United States, along with its irredeemable paper currency. So why don't people use such coins in everyday transactions like our ancestors did? Because owing to the debasement of the currency decade after decade since the FDR administration, it pays to use the government's debased fiat money rather than its gold coins. So he says, consider, for example, an official U.S. gold coin with a face value of $50. Suppose you want to purchase something that costs $50. You could pay the seller with that $50 gold coin, and he would be required under law, legal tender law, to accept it. So why wouldn't you do that? Because first you could go out and you could sell the coin for, say, $1,250 in paper money. I think at the time he wrote this article, that's what the spot rate was. Use $50 to pay for the item and pocket $1,200 in paper money. But he says, let's assume for argument's sake that the buyer does in fact pay for the item with the $50 gold coin and later sues the seller for $1,200 in change. Could he recover? No. Because the gold coin is legal tender at its face value. Once the buyer pays for the item with the gold coin, that's the end of the transaction. Now, suppose an employer and employee enter into an employment contract in which the employee agrees to work at a monthly salary of $100. At the end of the month, the employer pays the employee two gold coins, each with a face value of $50. There's his income, $100 a month. In essence, that's what Kari did. And since $100 isn't enough to trigger IRS withholding requirements, Kari didn't withhold income taxes from his employees. Now, the IRS and the Ninth Circuit say, oh, no, you don't. Even though those gold coins are legal tender under the law, you have to use their fair market value in terms of paper money in determining the employee's actual compensation. So how does the federal judiciary justify this, given that gold coins are legal tender at their face value? 
Well, the Ninth Circuit says that the IRS regulations require compensation paid in property rather than cash value be valued at fair market value in terms of paper money. Since gold coins are property, the court says they must be valued at their fair market value in terms of paper money. But wait a minute. Gold coins are cash. They're just as much cash as the government's paper money, which, like gold coins, is also property. If Congress doesn't want U.S. gold coins to serve as money, then why does it make one-ounce gold coins without a monetary denomination or without a, mon- a monetary denomination stamped on it? Why does it make the gold coins legal tender? And pray tell, since when does an IRS regulation overrule a law enacted by Congress? So here's the gist of it. What Kari did is expose the fraud behind all of this which is what made the welfare warfare state officials go ballistic. Either U.S. gold coins are legal tender or not. Either they are cash or not. And if they're not cash or legal tender, then it's wrong for the U.S. government to be representing that they are cash and legal tender. That's fraud. So let's assume that someone owes the IRS $1,000 and uses gold coins with a total face value of $1,000 to pay his tax bill. Would the Ninth Circuit order the IRS to pay the taxpayer the difference between the face value of the coins and the fair market value of the coins? Yet don't wear your brain out thinking this one over. Of course not. They would say, well, you're just out of luck, given the legal tender quality of the gold coins you use to pay your taxes. One system of rules for us, one system of rules for you. So Kari exposed the fraudulent means by which the welfare warfare state has plundered the American people through the fiat money scheme that FDR foisted on the American people during the New Deal. At the time he wrote this, he says, today it takes $1,200 in paper money, not $50 in paper money, to purchase one $50 gold coin. That difference reflects the horrific damage officials have done to our money over the decades. Yet I would wager for most Americans, this is, you know, out of sight, out of mind. And that's why they just, you know, they don't care. Never heard of Robert Carey. But maybe you should care. You may not feel like you have a dog in this fight, but if you use money, yeah, you do. Jacob Hornberger says this is why they needed to punish Kari so severely. 15 years in jail for using gold coins. He exposed this fraud of the statist's beloved welfare warfare state and the means, income tax and income taxation rather, and inflation by which the statists funded. What a horrible miscarriage of justice. Now, is it any surprise that uh, under the the new administration, one of the calls that we're hearing is for calls that we got to beef up the IRS. We got to get more agents out there. We got to build a bigger, better IRS. As if there is such a thing as a bigger, better IRS. Clearly, taxation is uh, just one mechanism of control among many. But boy, is it an effective one, right? How many people do you know that will defy the IRS? I mean, every year around April 15th, do they not trot out the latest example of, well, this person thought they could get away with not paying their fair share, which nobody ever really defines. And so we're going to hang them out to dry and let that be a lesson to all the rest of you guys. I'm sorry, you rubes. (laughs) Because that's pretty much how you're seen. I'm not saying you should have all of your money in gold and silver. But there is a difference between sound money and fiat currency. And when you're forced by law to accept as legal tender what would otherwise be worthless pieces of paper, maybe, just maybe, 
it deserves a little closer look. I'll let you make that choice. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, since we were speaking of money, I'm just going to remind you that at the end of the show notes page, there are two links of interest right below the sponsor links, and I would ask you to take a quick look at those. One of them asks you to subscribe to the podcast. It's simple. Click, and it's done. You'll be notified every time I publish a new episode, which is uh, typically twice daily, Monday through Friday. I, I haven't yet got to the point where I'm doing this on the weekends, but you know what? I love what I'm doing enough. I might just get around to that at some point. You also have the opportunity of becoming a supporter of this program by becoming a patron. A couple of different ways you can do it. There's a nice link there, again, in the show notes, and I would encourage you just think about it. If you find value and you feel like, hey, I could spare a buck or five bucks or ten bucks a month to, to help keep me doing what I'm doing and keep me focused on it, I would greatly appreciate it. And here's my promise to you. I would treat that money as sacred funds. This is not the uh, let's bri- buy Brian a Corvette for his midlife crisis fund. This is uh, how do I keep publishing the truth and speaking the truth as I best understand it and bringing encouragement and hopefully a little bit of light to those who are looking for it. So if that's something that resonates with you, would greatly appreciate your support. Thank you in advance for those who, who choose to do this. Would it surprise you to learn that there was once a time when providing value actually mattered, mattered more to businesses than signaling virtue. Got a great article here from Kimberly Josephson. This is from the Foundation for Economic Education with some much-needed perspective and history on how corporations came to view themselves as social stewards for social change rather than uh, businesses out there, you know, filling a need within the market. She says... Uh, CSR, that's Corporate Social Responsibility, gained notoriety with Howard R. Bowen's 1953 publication, Social Responsibilities of the Businessman. And although times have changed and CSR has taken on various forms, a constant question remains unchanged. That is, what is the role of business in society? Now, some claim that a greater focus on corporate social performance over corporate financial performance is now warranted while others adhere to a more classical viewpoint, siding with Theodore Levitt's assertion that business should simply aim to achieve material gain while operating in good faith. Levitt, a German-American economist and professor at the Harvard Business School, spoke of the dangers of social responsibility in a 1958 Harvard Business Review article. He posited that profit maximization over the long term should be the primary goal of business as this would have a spillover effect improving the well-being of society. Now, the propensity to exchange to benefit oneself as a means for societal advancement was most notably espoused by Adam Smith's 19, or 1776 uh, magnum opus, The Wealth of Nations. Milton Friedman later drove this message home in his seminal essay in the New York Times magazine about how the social responsibility of business is to increase its profits. Yet the prioritization of self-gain has proven such a hard pill to swallow for a culture that seeks emotional fulfillment via altruism. As such, businesses have not only been encouraged to engage in CSR, but also to harness it and to pursue a higher calling. 
In fact, there's a prominent depiction of the evolution of business interest in CSR, along with society's, that's corporate social responsibility, along with society's expectations for business behavior. That's Archie Carroll's CSR Pyramid, first published in 1991. At the base of the pyramid is the economic responsibility for firms to be a productive element of society and contribute to the financial well-being of the organization. The next level concerns the legal responsibility of a firm to abide by the ground rules and regulations within the societies they operate. Further up the pyramid concerns a firm's ethical responsibility since firms are, or since laws rather are not sufficient in and of themselves for maintaining order. Indeed, societies establish mores and conventions which influence culture and communal interactions. For instance, it is not illegal to cheat on one's spouse, but it does violate the institution of marriage, and to the same extent, firms are wedded to the societies they are established within and should abide by certain expectations to maintain a healthy relationship. The top of the pyramid is designated as the discretionary responsibility of philanthropy, wherein the company gives back and this responsibility was posited to be desired by society rather than required. Now, the CSR pyramid is still widely referenced, and Dr. Wayne Visser, CSR professional, attests it to be a useful framework for managerial decision-making. However, over time, the expectations for the top two tiers of the pyramid have expanded, and even what constitutes ethical behavior has evolved since Carroll's publication. So in today's competitive landscape... CSR constitutes a management strategy that goes beyond corporate giving and charitable networks. In fact, as defined by the United Nations, CSR is quite distinct from philanthropy, given that it takes into consideration the social and, e and environmental impact of a firm in addition to an economic impact. Kimberly Josephson says, An emphasis on people, planet, and profit has become par for the course and a variety of methods and forms of assessment regarding sustainability have come about for companies to prove their good work. John Elkington, who, term, who coined the term triple bottom line for determining the social, environmental, and economic impact of a firm, claims TBL doesn't go far enough, and the business view of CSR is too narrow. He claims firms should go beyond aiming to be the best in the world and instead aspire to be the best for the world. Now, what is best and for whom it is best, though, is largely subjective. In fact, it's open to interpretation. For instance, some social issues are undebatable, like the desire to end world hunger, but the means for addressing them are usually complex and contestable. Nevertheless, corporations are viewing themselves as social stewards with a moral charge, and this is an important shift to note, particularly since it's being driven by public opinion. A 2018 study reported that 78% of Americans believe companies must have a positive societal impact beyond their productive purpose. And 77% of Americans feel a stronger emotional connection to purpose-driven corporations. Companies are responding to public sentiments and reinforcing such expectations through cause-related marketing campaigns and social labeling schemes. And this is a worrisome matter given the potential to compound the issues at hand. Kimberly Josephson says, unlike the stages of the CSR pyramid, which tended to be industry-oriented, firms stretching beyond their domain of competence to prove themselves as worthy contributors to society at large, rather than streamlining efforts towards core, toward core stakeholders, is disconcerting for shareholders and distracting for budding entrepreneurs. She says, the spearheading of virtuous ventures and advocacy advertising show no signs of slowing down. 
and it won't until social pressure shifts back to value rather than virtue. I mean, there was a time where I would be absolutely okay with, you know what? I'm going to boycott this company and that company. And I'm, I'm still thinking for some people, this may be, you know, the better way to go. All I know is I, I miss the days when we didn't have to politicize all the decisions about, well, I really like these jeans, but since Levi Strauss is really supportive of this or really anti that, I don't know that I can ever wear them again. I mean, you hear people talk about this, you know, with their favorite uh, television shows, a good movie comes out. Well, I'd watch that movie, but I know that this actor or this actress actually is a closet lib, or maybe they're just an open lib. Do you see what happens when we we start allowing uh, politics to color everything? It makes things unnecessarily complicated. And I, I don't want to sound conspiratorial. Because I'm not trying to suggest that, you know, well, the Illuminati is what's behind this. and But it's still very disturbing to me to see how corporate America has partnered with government in so many ways. And it's been especially telling to see how it happened, you know, for instance, during the, the, the whole uh, COVID response. Living in Utah and, and working for a business that actually was, you know, tasked with, well, now you need to make sure that all your employees are masked and everybody who comes in the store should be reminded that they're supposed to be wearing a mask too. So it wasn't really the state that was standing there telling everybody at the door, hey, you should be wearing a mask. But instead, through through business licensure and through you know the unelected bureaucrats in the health department, we were told, and this is as workers at a convenience store, that it was our job If somebody came up to the cash register without a mask to remind them, you should be wearing a mask or under a mandate right now. I guess I can say this because I I no longer work at that uh, that store. But I had a real problem with that. And part of it stemmed from, you know, I I saw coworkers, I mean, good people. These are are not people who are out there flexing, you know, because they had some authority. They were just trying to, you know, follow corporate policy, which was trying to follow state policy. But they'd remind people, hey, you should be wearing a mask. And I mean, F-bombs flying, fingers in the air. Yeah, just people would be so angry. And maybe I was wrong to take this approach, but I was like, I'm not their mom. I'm not going to be reminding anybody of anything. And if that was enough to, to cost me my job, I was willing to walk away from the job rather than, than try to become an enforcer. There should be a separation of business and state. Because what's happening right now, I don't know, it has a kind of unholy feel to it. Makes me nervous. This is The Brian Hyde Show.